Hello everyone and welcome to today's episode of The Figure. We are going to dedicate this episode to my amazing mum, Jane, who died on the first day of spring 2022 in March. And today is her birthday, 28th of November. And we are going to be reflecting on what she means to us, what she stood for, what her legacy is. And so what I would like to do is start by reading out a post that I wrote on that a few weeks ago on Instagram. The photographs were of the beautiful sunset near where I live at Ruby Bay and my two gorgeous dogs. And it was something that I wrote shortly after doing a crazy November swim. In the last year, I have learned to never ever take what my body can do for granted. Sunday the 14th of November 2021 was the last day my mum could see. The days that followed were experienced in partial darkness, which quickly slid into a total blackout. Her bravery was astonishing. She was and is stronger than I could ever have imagined. Her resilience was something she built up day by day, decade by decade. She never missed an opportunity to challenge herself and raise my brother and I to follow in her footsteps. As I stepped into the waves this afternoon, saying aloud, I must be mad, I held on to her lesson that challenging yourself matters and my own, that nothing your body does should be taken for granted. The light reaching through the clouds onto the swirls, the roar, the salt, the cold, the life of the sea is an eternal remedy for me, as are the moments that follow. Zara shugling the water from her coat, happy all over. Hoppy frantic with worry and then over the moon at our return to the shore. The feeling of my mum's old navy dressing gown wrapped around me and sand in my socks as I marched back to the car. The quick twist of a dial to blast the heating all the way home. There is nothing that makes me feel more alive, free and lucky in this body on this earth. Thank you so much, Arthur reading that to us and for sharing it again and kind of setting the context and scene behind you know why we haven't done the podcast but also what's been going on for you and I think it was so beautiful talking about you know your mom and the scent your senses and the cold and water because that's so about who she was and she absolutely insisted on challenging oneself um, and something that everyone who knew her and knows her will always say about her is whether it was on the ski slopes in freezing cold water on the bike that's a consistent theme with her and that's something that you have definitely inherited from her as well and it rubs off on all of us in an extremely profound and positive way so I just wanted to start by asking can you take us back to that time, uh, this time last year, and sort of give a, for anyone who, well, for a lot of people listening who won't know the story, when was she first diagnosed? When did you first find out? And kind of how long that lead up was until, until the turning point, because November of last year was a, a, a serious turning point to which uh, things changed rapidly and she, and she passed away several months later. Yes. So this time last year, she had had three diagnoses in terms of her cancer. 
So the first was breast cancer. That was in 2017. But that was several years after she had first found a lump. And when she first got it checked, just by one doctor in one hospital, she didn't tell anyone that she was going. And they said that it was nothing to worry about. And they obviously scanned it. And then she went away. She did not like that experience whatsoever. Um, She found it very uncomfortable, very painful being checked. And if I could go back and change one thing, it would be that she would have told somebody then. Hmm. But she didn't. So then fast forward to 2017, the lump has changed a lot. Her, it has become really quite advanced. And she, being who she was, so for people who don't know my mum, she was a chiropractor and nutritionist. And she set up a holistic health clinic in London health and diet and exercise and alternative remedies was what she lived and breathed Mm -hmm. and her response to her cancer followed that we had wanted her to get surgery uh she had actually booked in but decided not to go ahead with that ironically partly because she didn't want to lose function of her arm because they would have to take out some pectoral muscle when they did the surgery And in the end, she didn't have use of pretty much any of her body, partly because of bone cancer. And then the third diagnosis was brain cancer. And it didn't actually go into her brain itself. It was in the layer around her brain, which is known as the dura. And this diagnosis came in September 2021. And then the optic nerve was impacted and when I was with her in the consultant's room they said that it was likely that the optic nerve blood supply had been impacted by the cancer around her brain and this is what had led to the permanent and irreversible damage of her sight which began on the 15th of November last year and quickly progressed into a total lack of sight so so she basically couldn't see anything from December onwards Mm. which obviously upped the level of care that she needed hugely Mm. and initially my brother and I managed between us and with the support of our amazing friends and family and we eventually got some professional care in we had a live-in carer but our caring didn't really stop you sort of needed multiple people to look after her and keep her at home which we were so happy that we were able to do. Maggie's centre had helped all the way through. I got some therapy from them for free, which was absolutely fantastic. And Marie Curie came in to help. Macmillan came in to help. GP, my uncle and his wife were incredible. But the role reversal of child looking after their parent really took on a new level of intensity from the 14th of November onwards. And it got to the point where we would be not only making all of her food to very strict recipes, obviously, (laughs) but helping her sort of hold her drink, find her mouth because she couldn't see, but she also had a numb numbness. So that had also been impacted from the cancer around her brain and 
there really wasn't sort of anything that we didn't do for her by the end. Um, we actually had a baby monitor set up so that we would have kind of each night we'd had duty. So it was either me, my brother or my uncle, so her brother. And if we heard her moving around or trying to get up and try to go to the loo or needing a glass of water or whatever it was, we would immediately jump up and go and help her. She was absolutely determined to do as much as she possibly could for herself, even though she wasn't really able to. And it was actually quite dangerous for her to try lots of things for herself. She was such an independent person right from her, the very beginning. That did not change. And at some points I slept in the room with her because that was easier. But because of the lack of sight, that basically meant she had no sense of time. She didn't know what time of day it was. So she would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and be thirsty or need something. And there was no sense of where she was in the day. Just hearing you talk about all of that, is I'm watching you go and watching you go through it at the time it was something that is so like I can't believe that that whole experience happened and that you at I think such a relatively young age you know at 26 and obviously for people this happens at all stages of life having to be that sole carer for your parent and watch your parent suffer so much and then looking after them it's it's something that I just think you I, you can't I can't you can't even put into words what that must be like and sadly that's true of so many people having parents or relatives who are ill and one thing I also wanted to to ask you in, in that time frame so from sort of 2017 when you had the diagnosis up until earlier this year at what point do you realize that this was terminal so just to make a comment on what you just said about the experience of caring for somebody people said this to me at the time and people very close to me and so I, I don't think you could really say this to somebody if you weren't that close to them but it's that it is a privilege to care and look after someone who you love who is dying mm. and having the conversations in the space to hopefully all reach that point of acceptance so that you can say all of the things that you want to say so that you can operate in a way where you aren't going to have regrets because you wish that you'd said something or had that opportunity to say goodbye yeah. we had a lot of time to talk about everything that we wanted or needed to talk about we did beautiful things like my mum wrote a letter to her grandchildren like her future grandchildren which I won't open until the time comes and I yeah I sort of recognized at the time that it was a privilege but it was also so hard that it I couldn't really let that sink in and then now reflecting back I can see that I wouldn't have changed a thing and I feel very lucky to have had a time where we both knew what was going to happen and so we were able to really just appreciate spending time with each other talking when she was able to actually when she had the energy to talk her hearing really started to get a lot worse she'd always had problems with her hearing so that was quite really frustrating because hearing was one of the only things that we had and then that sort of fell away but even if it was just literally sitting in the room with her and holding her hand 
and helping her with whatever she needed doing. That was an experience that I think is um, remarkable. In terms of my own acceptance, so this came in April or May 2020. So she had had, she'd been to New Zealand and <laughs> had an amazing time. She had been very frustrated at the fact that she wasn't able to do the Scottish country dancing that she wanted to do. She did maybe one or two dances, but it was too painful with her lower back. But by that point, she'd had the bone cancer diagnosis and it was mainly in her hips and her lower back. And that really impacted her mobility, which she found very frustrating. She was always incredibly sporty and super strong. So that was something that she found very difficult. She was absolutely 100% certain that she was going to get better at this point. So even though she was riding around on the sofa in pain and my brother and I were not knowing what to do and she was just about to go into radiotherapy and then during radiotherapy that was very physically painful. It was very obvious it was physically painful. She still believed that she was going to get it to go backwards. And this was this was in the, pan the pandemic. She went to New Zealand in February. Um, I remember having dinner with you early March in London, George and Julius, and that was the last time I saw you then before the summer. And it was in that in that period. So not only did you have this very obvious pain and radiotherapy, but it was during the first lockdown, which we I weren't able to go into the appointments with her. Right. So we had to drop her at the door of the hospital or eventually she ended up getting an ambulance come and pick her up to take her to the radiotherapy appointments and there was definitely a point where I realized that this was not going to get better and that bone cancer is not something that you can reverse and that we didn't know how long it would be but this I was going to have to accept the mortality of my mum and that was very difficult but I think that it meant that when she had this huge surge of energy and lease of life that came after that so from sort of late in the summer 2020 for a roughly a year I mean she wasn't great but she was a lot better and she was totally independent like we didn't have to look after her but it then meant that when the decline came again I'd already had a, I'd done a lot of the accepting already and I'd also done a lot of the caring and knowing what you might need to have to do it very much got to a different level with especially with the blindness but it um it wasn't such a shock and I also really had got to the point where I just wanted to soak up every moment and really really appreciate everything that I had and all the time that I had which I definitely think made everything easier but I think acceptance is hugely hugely important and I have to say a, a massive thank you to my amazing friend, Hugo, who's my mum's godson, who is a doctor and who really was the one who got through to her about accepting where she was going in terms of her cancer and what was going to come. And he took her to a hospital appointment and uh, had a really frank conversation with her, which was a very brave thing to do. And that was a turning point. She really changed the way that she was talking about things. He explained how difficult it was for us to be sort of tiptoeing around and her to keep thinking that she was gonna get better and, and that made a really, really big difference. So I think if anybody listening is 
supporting somebody with very, very serious, very advanced cancer or is ill themselves. I think trying to reach a place of acceptance in your own way and it, everyone has their own timeline for this, but getting there is makes such a huge difference. So everything else can kind of release a little bit once you get to that and it's not something that you even really get to it's sort of an ongoing process but even just beginning it helps hugely so what i'm hearing is that she you know she hadn't had that acceptance until hugo had sort of began to have that conversation with her it was a bumpy journey because she d- took a long time for her to accept that her sight wasn't going to come back that was also really difficult because she was very knowledgeable about all sorts of different things she loved to learn about things and so she wanted to learn about what she could do to try and help her sight and get even a little bit back because she wanted her quality of life to be better naturally and anybody would want that but it was interesting having been with her in the room with the consultant absolute expert in all things eyesight saying to her categorically this is not reversible this is permanent damage and then her still trying to scrabble at trying to find something that would help. That was hard. But then we got to the point of her accepting it. I mean, it was pretty late, it's like February. And then there was an interesting period of time where she was having really vivid dreams, some of them quite disturbing. They got weirder when she was on the morphine. <laughs> um, there was one where she, was very insistently telling us that George, my brother, who is now at drama school, had to go for an audition for Shakespeare in Love, which is an amazing film, but came out, I think, in the 90s. Um, so there were there were kind of moments where you really had to laugh, and there were lots of them, even in the blackest of darkness. And I've actually been going through recently some of the things that I wrote down on my phone to try and remember the funny things that she'd said or the sweet things that she said because there was this real distillation of who she was and she became this like even more so like loving being she wanted to help she wanted to say honest beautiful things she wanted to make everyone know how grateful she was and she became very childlike right towards the end and actually the teddy bear that your mum got her which she named Tumpf because her dad had said that if somebody had a bit of a tummy he would describe them as being Tumpfy (laughs) so this little bear that she actually never saw she could only feel how he felt Um, he was very soft and it was such a beautiful present for your mum to get my mum when touch and feeling was so important and that was the sense that she still had and we had so many sweet interactions with this little teddy bear. When we had the district nurses come through who are just extraordinary. I love every single one of them. And one of our favourites was called Alex. And my mum didn't realise Alex had already left the room. And she said, oh, is, is Alex still there? And we're like, no, no, she's not. And she was like, okay, I'm going to pretend that this is Alex. And she held Tumpf and she gave Tumpf this huge hug and she was like, thank you so much, Alex. And as I was sort of bursting into tears, I ran back because Alex was still at the door and I told her what happened. 
um, because I thought that it was really important to know that my mum wanted her to know that. With that teddy bear, I had, I was, we were all going up for New Year and mum had been on the phone and said, you know, I don't know what, I don't know what to send, I don't know what to give, I don't know what to say. I don't know if she said I don't know what to say, but you know, but I wanted to raise this point, which was just send what you want to send, say what you want to say. Mum wanted to send a teddy bear, she just thought, she said, you know, is that is that appropriate? Is it not appropriate? And I think we'd spoken a lot about this, about how sometimes what can be really hard when going through grief or the process of suffering and, and being really unwell is people sometimes feel very self-conscious suddenly about what to say or how to be. And that teddy bear was a really good example of that, of actually, what would I want in that situation? And there's no, there's no right or wrong. I mean, obviously there's, we're talking about with very, very, very close friends and family. And I know that we've spoken before about actually what can be really hard is people not talking about the issue head on and, and not addressing what's clearly going on. Um, I think what I'd say to anybody who is close to somebody going through something really difficult or is close to somebody supporting somebody going through something really difficult because Greg Wise who is married to Emma Thompson and was on last year's Strictly Come Dancing those are my two great reference points to him uh, has talked beautifully about grief and the circles of support that come with that so the person mm. who is dying is in the center of the circle you then have the immediate caregivers be that sons, daughters, brothers, husbands, mothers, fathers, that level of intimacy is the immediate circle, then those people need support around them and sometimes more. So you can see how it goes out like a ripple. And I think that if you are somebody in the ripple, the first thing to say is don't say nothing. If you're thinking maybe I should send them a message. Or if somebody has just died, maybe I should send a letter, I'm not sure. I didn't really know them very well. Don't really know the person grieving very well. It doesn't matter. I had letters from people that I've never met before and who had met my mum once or twice and who had found out through a friend, a brother. And they often meant the most to me. And the other thing that I'd say that if you're going to be writing a message or a letter, I personally love letters more than messages. I appreciate everything that I received, but there was something incredibly special about seeing people's handwriting and knowing that that person had taken the time to sit down with a pen and paper or a card and, put, and go to the post office. That communicated a level of support that was really, really felt. The ones that I liked the most and feel the most attached to are the ones that had the stories of my mum, some of which that I had never heard before. Uh, so for example, one of my favourites was from my godfather's daughter, Caro, and she said that one of her lasting memories was when they were, so Caro herself was only 11 or so, my mum was there, and Caro had fallen off her bike and her buckle, like her rock had buckled her wheel, and my mum immediately goes, you know, going over, 
picks her up or probably doesn't pick her up, tells her to pick herself up um, and then grabs the rock that had done the damage. And she went, I think that if it did the damage, it should also do the fixing and sends then bashing <laughs> the bike wheel with the rock that caused <laughs> the issue. And I never heard that story before and I just loved it. And it really made me smile because it was so typical of her. And the other letters that I really appreciated were ones that were not too formal in their language. I think there's a lot of sort of sincerest condolences, which is often used by companies that are not being very sincere. So I think that can not be always the right phrase. I liked it when people didn't project feelings onto it too much. So for example, they would open with, I'm so sorry to hear of the death of your mother. And using the word death, not any kind of tiptoeing around it, just being very factual. Because at the time, there were a lot of people, and I don't mean to criticise anybody at all, I'm just saying the ones that kind of resonated the most and felt the most helpful at the time. If people said how sad it was, how terrible it was, all of these big, bad adjectives, yes, it's sad, yes, it's terrible, it feels more sad and more terrible now, than it did at the time but at the time it felt like a huge relief because she had been in so much pain she had had basically no sense at all apart from touch and even then she had parts of herself that were completely numb and so I think that I didn't really want to read sad terrible at the time so I think that if you are again writing things try to Try to just think, to put yourself in their shoes as much as possible. And also I'd say that if you are someone supporting or someone who's grieving and you do feel a sense of relief, there is nothing to feel guilty about with that. That, that was going to be, so So, is it okay that, that I ask you about the, the last couple of weeks? Because yeah. I think that leads up to this. Even when, when we were there for New Year, she was not taking morphine or there's any any pain relief at all I believe obviously then that got to the point in January and February where that needed to happen as February progressed what was what was happening sort of day to day and what was those final moments what were they what was that like so uh, the painkillers, you're correct. The Basically, the only painkiller that she would accept was her own endorphins and her own adrenaline. So she would get onto her bike, standing bike, and we'd open the door for her so she could feel some fresh air. And she would pedal as fast as she could and get her heart rate up and move her body, which always made her feel better. She'd also use her skin brush to sort of distract from the pain and that you stimulate your like sort of touch receptors in one part of your body and then that distracts it from another part so it's what um tens machines is the theory behind that the painkillers the acceptance of that and i basically worked out that the only way to get her to do certain things that were not within her framework of belief were mm -hmm. to explain how difficult it was for me and george if i said to her it is so difficult for us to see you in pain. And we know that you are in pain, even though you say you are not. And it really would help us if you just tried this painkiller, just to see if it helps and makes a difference. And it would really make our lives easier if you could do that. Then she did it. 
she would not do it for herself. So going back to February, so Ali, our amazing care, we also had Sam's. Mm-hmm. Ali was very, very good at understanding very quickly how you needed to communicate with my mum to get her to try something or do something or cooperate with something that she didn't necessarily want to do in terms of taking a painkiller. So she helped a lot. And in terms of the final few days, so I was talking about earlier about the dreams that she had, and they were very frantic for a period and really you could see that she was sort of working things through in her head and like she was in a bit of turmoil and then maybe the last three days two days she suddenly reached this point of peace and it was as if she had kind of ironed things out and there was such a sense of calm about her she she didn't say anything on her last day um, the previous day, she only said two words, which was thank you to the carer Sands, which feels very appropriate. And we were all with her um, on her last day. Um, my brother, me, her brother and his wife. Mm-hmm. And Tumph, of course. And it was so beautiful. It was the first day of spring and it was the most perfect blue golden day I think I've ever experienced. It was just absolutely exquisite. And that night was the clearest night I think I've ever seen. We could see so many stars and we all went for a walk together. Hugo had arrived by this point. And I've forgotten what you asked me originally. I've just (laughs) talked. Just how it was, just how it was for you in those last moments, and because you were talking about, you know, the relief that you had felt, which are so common in these situations where someone has been very unwell for such a long period of time, and just how the, those last moments when she was alive, how that was, and then the sort of feelings that you had just afterwards. Mm. So when I wrote to friends and family, we'd had this sort of big email that I'd send to people to update everyone on where she was with um, her treatment or what she was doing or um, how she was feeling. And that was important to keep everybody in the loop. And I think it helped for me and for her to be able to write things to friends and send it out. And I sent this because I, I didn't want to have to make too many phone calls and I didn't want anyone to hear from other people. I wanted it to come from me. So I wrote that email literally the day after. And what I said was that it felt as though all the effort that had gone into keeping her at home, which was absolutely huge. There were so many people involved in making that happen. But all of that effort and energy just felt like a complete relief and release that we got there. And it made the whole thing just fall away. Sort of the same feeling that you would have as if you'd been climbing a mountain for years Um, and then you finally get to the summit of the mountain and all of that muscle pain and and everything just falls away and you feel so free that's how it felt Uh, and I think that's very different to how lots of people think it may feel the narrative Mm. and the fear and the unknown and uncertainties can make it very scary um but there was no absolutely nothing scary about it at all the scary part I think came afterwards when you realize that you are living without this amazing person 
and that's not ever going to change. Thank you so much for sharing that. I think what people don't know if they're either going through it or they've never experienced it is that there is that fear completely mm -hmm. of what's, what's it going to look like? What's it going to look like a couple of months before? What's yeah. it going to look like what happens? And then, you know, and then afterwards. And I say, just having said that I live without her, I, I live without her human earth presence, but I live with her all the time she is so present in my life and i have absolutely loved hearing about what her shadow or imprint is on this earth and it is just huge I, I couldn't believe how many people came to the funeral how many people wrote letters how many people have changed the way that they exercise or what they cook or there was one beautiful letter which is from my friend Mungo who I again I went to primary school with him I don't see him very often he wrote this absolutely beautiful letter and he said that your mum taught me how to chop an onion and uh, because she used to do healthy cooking courses and he's like I think about her every single time I chop an onion <laughs> and I love it I feel like that's a great legacy absolutely I think what is also a very scary prospect is that time after and so you and George hosted the most incredible service for her, full of just so many different people, all of whom she had also connected. So everyone there knew each other. But what, what was it like in that time? So after she passed away to the service and then afterwards in terms of your grief, in terms of that acceptance, in terms of how to get through that period? I, like my mum, numb myself with busyness. I would say there are lots of different types of <laughs> uh, coping mechanisms. I think one of mine is definitely being busy, being productive, making yeah. a list, ticking things off the list. And there was a lot of that to do mm. after she died and leading up to the service. So we had just over a month to organise that. And because of that acceptance that we had all reached, we had been able to discuss all the details. So with her. With her. Yeah. I had had lots of ideas, which I had put to her, and she had told me whether that was, yes, that's right, that's what I'd like, or no, or how about this? Can we have this? So she chose all the music. Well, we chose it together. Some of it was her idea some of it was mine and she liked it so we had things like the sky boat song which is a lullaby that she sang to me and my brother when she was pregnant with us and when we were tiny and that was done by my very great friend mary and then we all sang it together so we didn't have any traditional hymns um we couldn't really find one that felt fitting she didn't really have one that she really wanted and we did the service outside in the woods and we were all praying for beautiful weather and we did have lovely weather in April and we had the daffodils all out and it was very beautiful. Yes, yeah, so there was a lot to organise. It's very odd organising something where you have no idea how many people are going to turn up. Mm. That was quite a challenge, but we had plenty of banana bread and carrot cake, her recipes. And my uncle very kindly provided sparkling wine 
and we had tea and coffee um and the whole service was very very hurt and it was even led by a friend julia which felt very us um we were kind of always a everyone hands on deck kind of family when it came to organizing things like this so Yes, to go back to your original question, in the aftermath, there was a lot to do. There's a lot of paperwork when it comes to things like this. And something I wish I'd known about, which I only found out about recently, is a service called Settled, spelt S-E-T-T-L-D, so no second E. And the government has this policy called Tell Us Once, um, which is very useful. So you do your kind of death certificate registering, which is always a bit of a shaky conversation um and then they are able to notify other government bodies settled is similar but it does it for companies so they will tell banks they will tell subscriptions social media companies all sorts of things and if i'd known about that that would have been really really helpful because there is a lot that you need to do in terms of telling people especially things like banks and uh, some companies are better than others so that was really going on and then it was sort of the grief came in waves and I, it still changes. It's like a living thing. Did the service provide a distraction for you at that point? I'd say more a focal point. Yeah. Because I felt like I was able to put my feelings into that. Yeah. And I... I'm really, really, I couldn't have been happier with how it went. And I felt like I was able to be really present in that moment as well. I was so proud of everyone who spoke and contributed. And I think it was more after that. And then when I went to Florence on my own, which was something that I had booked way before, and I didn't really know if I was going to be able to go or not. And then I was able to go. And it was good because it gave me a chance to have some space away from my lovely family home, but which was absolutely crammed full of stuff I all needed to go through. And we are turning it into a holiday let. So that has been a huge, huge time consuming um, project. And so when I was at home, I could kind of keep on doing things. There's always something to do. So there wasn't very much space for just sitting and thinking and feeling and reflecting or writing. Or So in Florence, I had that. And uh, I was reading this absolutely beautiful book called Still Life by Sarah Winman, which was recommended by my boyfriend's aunt. And I really loved this book. I started reading it on my flight out to Florence and I finished it the day before I left, I think or maybe the day that I left. So it spanned the whole time that I was there. I was going to be there for a month. I actually came home early, partly because I couldn't spend time on my own. I found it so painful not to be Mm. in the company of somebody that I knew. And Florence is my favorite city, probably, other than Edinburgh. And there are lots of wonderful, comforting things about it. I love going through art galleries and being in such a beautiful place. But there was definitely something about being away from home and not in a place where I could drive and see somebody and cry in the company of someone that was very difficult. 
And I'm really, really happy that I made the decision to not stick to my plan for the sake of it and not kind of try and prove that I could do something and just go, no, it's time to come home. Mm. But yes, that was really hard. And then since then, I think I've just become more comfortable with bringing her along with me in my conversations, in the way that I speak about certain things and my attitude and my choices I think about her and talk about her a lot I try not to put her on a pedestal too much because that's exactly what she did about her mum so I we've got a bit of a pattern in that my great-grandmother died of cancer my grandmother died of cancer my mother died of cancer all similar ages in terms of being diagnosed and then passing and uh I don't want to fall into that trap of speaking about somebody in such a way that they're not even within reach to the people who didn't know them. Like my mum was a complicated person, as we all are. But I think that what has shone through since she's died is how ahead of her time she was, like how well her strength, and then so just like really distinctive things about her that make me smile when I think about them so for example there are loads of words and phrases that she used which I'll say them or I'll think about it or I'll listen to the recording that I made with her um, which we can talk about and um, she just feels very here when I certain ways and I think that trying to find a way of doing that is really important absolutely Absolutely. And I think sometimes for people who haven't experienced it, they think, oh, gosh, actually, I, don't, I probably shouldn't talk about it or I probably shouldn't ask you about her. But actually what you want, and especially for you and your brother, is to actually keep her alive in the sense of this is what, something that Jane did. And actually going to a house, you can't really go very far and not see her everywhere, because for many people who don't know, she converted your home and built your home it was a staple before and so she's sort of living breathing that house exactly and I just love filling the house with people and I make a big point of having flowers wherever I can she always had wonderful flower arrangements which was something that her mum did that she then did that I will then do and you're right so she she and my dad um inherited this house um, or it was a stables and they then converted it into what it is now and I really noticed all the little details of all the sort of beautiful things that she did to, or thought to do to make it feel as if it had always been this way but also to really put her stamp on it and she always chose very classic things and just the design of the kitchen is brilliant like it's just such a joy to cook in that kitchen it's really the heart of the house and I am going to be moving to Edinburgh very soon. And so I've been thinking about how I can keep having a sense of her around. So one of the things that I'll be doing is moving a lot of the crockery and special things that I wouldn't want to get broken. So I will have lots of her things, but I'm also going to choose a tree in the meadows that will be my mother tree, which I will go to as much as I want to and much as I can because what I found really helpful is we have this tree in the woods that is like a branch bench that I found while she was still alive. 
she really wanted to have a bench and we didn't really know where to put it. We wanted it to have a particular view of the Bass Rock, but this, when I came across it, felt so fitting because it was just already there with the beautiful view. And amazingly, right in front of it, there's this stone with a flat face and we've had her name carved into the stone. And I walk the dogs there pretty much every single day. And I love it as a little ritual. And it just, so I come in the morning and I sort of see the sun rising up over the sea. I mean, I'm incredibly lucky. I live in the most beautiful, beautiful part of the world. And I'm just about to move to another stunning city. So I feel very lucky for that. But I also want to keep that going. So I think having something that you do to remember that person, acknowledge them, have it part of your everyday life is really helpful. And what other things have helped me recently? Swimming. I started doing that when she was ill in 2020 and there was something about going into cold water and doing something that you knew was going to be hard and cold and challenging and then coming out and feeling like you could just face anything. That's why I started doing it. That's why I keep doing it. Um, it comes and goes a little bit, but every time I do it, I never re regret it. And I think if anyone is finding things difficult in their life especially if you can't change the thing that's difficult choosing challenge somehow seems to alleviate something or it certainly does for me will you miss the house yeah oh god how are you feeling about that very mixed and that i know that i'm going to miss lots of things about this house but I'm also not going to miss having the responsibility. I will still have the responsibility. I, my dad and my mum divorced. So this house is passed down to me and my brother. And it's required a lot to get it to the point of becoming a holiday home. We're getting there. Still some stuff to do. But I love the idea of other people coming here and like enjoying it and the house being full. Because this house is meant to be full. It's not meant to be lived in by a 27 year old and her dogs so I am going to miss it but I um that, I mean part of the reason we've done holiday lets is so that we can come back and we can block out time and we know that it'll be checked and looked after I'm also really excited to live a younger life again because mm. so much of the last few years has just been not the typical life of someone in their mid-20s and I'm very excited to be back in a city and going out and going to new places and spending lots of time with friends and going to the pub and not having to drive back afterwards. <laughs> it's like the new chapter. And I think, you know, you, you know, the last three years pretty much have been impacted so much by cancer and knowing that you would you know you have to be the primary person that be there for your mum and so this is sort of exciting but obviously strange and daunting I imagine to leave the house but you're not really leaving it because you can come back and you know you'll end up there but hearing this conversation has just been wonderful and I know that everyone listening will find it wonderful but also I feel very happy for you and so proud of you for everything that you have gone through in the last couple of years and what the next phase will be I think I want to just finish with a few more advice points and I don't want to be giving like unsolicited advice I know everything that I've said may apply may be helpful may not be helpful at all but these are the things that I found helpful and 
just remember that every single situation is different. My advice for somebody who is caring for someone who is dying or very ill is to, especially from cancer, go to Maggie's and get some free therapy. Really helpful. And try and get the person who is going through the illness also have therapy if that's something they're open to. That can get you to the point of acceptance, which as I've explained before, is very, very important. Contact social services as soon as possible. I applied for help and funding because I knew we were gonna need some caring in November. Our social services funding came through one week before my mum died. So it took that long for it to come through. And that may just be my counsel, but I don't think that's an abnormal experience. I had to badger them again and again and again. And we did get some money, but it would have been so much more helpful to have that earlier. And we really, really needed it. Like my mum needed live-in care all the time. So that's the other thing. Oh, and apply for a blue badge for disability parking again ASAP because it takes weeks by the time we applied and actually got it she wasn't going out which was also quite frustrating if you know someone who is actually this doesn't really apply to anyone ill make recordings of conversations with the people that you love I have a recording that I made with my mum when I knew that she was not going to be here for when I had children and she did not know that or didn't accept it or voice it. My mum was unbelievable on so many health advice things. But the thing that I think she was absolutely exceptional at was pregnancy and birth. And she talked about it in such a positive and happy way. And that whole culture of fear that can so often surround her was just never, ever with her. And that's one of the things that I am sort of most grateful for that she's passed on to me and how she brought me up. And I really wanted to capture that. And I had lots of specific questions. And so what I did was my very good friend Felicity was pregnant at the time. And so this was lockdown 2020. We couldn't see each other. And so I had this, I said to my mum, I've had this idea. I'd really like to make a recording for Felicity, knowing that it was not only going to be for Felicity, but be for me, my friends, other people in the future about pregnancy and birth and breastfeeding. And it was one of the most special mornings. I sat side by side with her. I had some questions and we talked for about 40 minutes, calmly, slowly. And that recording, which has her real voice, because that was the other thing that happened, is that her voice was impacted by the way that she wasn't able to move her jaw and her face. So that changed the way that her voice sounded, which also, again, made me even more grateful that I had this recording from a few years back and it is just such a precious precious thing to have so I think if that's something that you feel that would help you you know having someone's voice having a conversation try and come up with a way that isn't sort of too pressured and do that things like making a letter to grandchildren like coming up with ideas of thinking what in the future might I want and then trying to have the conversations to make it happen depending on what is right for you Reading stories is so lovely, like just sitting and reading to them. My brother did the most incredible readings of Harry Potter with all of the voices. His Hagrid and Dobby especially were very good. And then I think if someone's like not wanting to accept help and if they're being a bit difficult to be cared for, remind them of how much they've helped you. So that was something that I've spoken about. It eased 
my mum going, oh, no, don't, you don't need to sleep in here or you don't need to do this or you don't need to that. And I went, you know, go and do this and this. And I no, but I want to. Like, you did this for me. And so now I'm going to care for you and this is what I want to do. Mm. Um, and then finally ask for help and accept help from other people, which leads me on to my advice for other people. We had some friends, the lambs, who turned up with boxes of food, lasagnas, fish pie, things that could go in the freezer or be eaten straight away. And Bridie, my friend, um, she lost her dad more than 10 years ago. And I think you could very much tell the people who had been through something similar because the way that they responded and supported was just so mm. wonderful. And what I really appreciated them doing was that they, I would have loved to have seen them, but I think at that point it was so intense seeing anybody. They just left this lovely parcel on the doorstep with a card. And then they didn't knock on the door. They didn't, they didn't basically ask anything from us not even a hello and that at the time was so appreciated if you're going to send flowers flowers are lovely try and send a vase because depending on what's happened you could end up with literally a whole house full of flowers um and nothing to put them in we actually asked for bulbs when my mum passed and I am so happy that we did that because we now have things that will keep coming up again and again. So if you have a garden or you like gardening or the person that you're caring for likes gardening, if there's any kind of this gardening thing, bulbs are lovely and even better, go over and help them plant the bulbs or just plant them for them. Ask where it's going to be and then just do it. My uncle gave me and my boyfriend a night in a hotel. We were going to do it anyway. And then he heard that I'd had this idea and he was like, I want to pay for it. So if you're in a financial position where you can do something like that, that was absolutely amazing. Getting someone a massage, giving someone a massage. There was a friend who came around and just gave my mum a hand massage, just quietly sat with her. And on that, if you are going to be visiting somebody, remember that their energy will be very limited and if that person who is unwell spends a huge amount of their energy on you, that will take away from the energy they have for, say, their children, their partner, whoever is the primary caregiver. And I think I really realised like how important it is to protect the time and the energy. So if you're visiting, be mindful of that. And then I think after the person has died and then the you're grieving if you're trying to support someone grieving offer them time like say you've got a Saturday morning say would you like me to come over and we can go through clothes or we can go through this box that was really appreciated whenever I had somebody to help me do something like that as well as like just check-ins and I think on checking in depending on how you, what your relationship is with the person grieving saying no need to reply or no need to respond is something that I now do in my own messages because I know that if you have like a complete flurry, it's very overwhelming. And then it almost gives the person something else to do that they need to then, they feel like they need to respond, which is not always, I mean, usually the person sending the message doesn't expect to reply depending on what it is. But I think just explicitly saying that can be very good. I think that is it for advice. Do you have anything to add? Because you've also been through lots and your dad was very unwell at one point I know that there were lots of friends around you yes 
but I honestly felt like I became personal secretary for about party and I and I genuinely mean that like literally all day I was managing his phone and managing my phone and I was like oh my god I'm spending all my time doing that and it's just because you have so many lovely friends who want to know all the updates and you don't possibly have time or the energy to do that so yeah I think my advice would echo that you know just be like no need to reply I think when you're going through a hard time again people overthink what they should say not say what they should do and not do just do it do it all yes um and, and don't ask how you, how are you at the beginning yes. of the conversation yes yes because if you are in fight flight caring you, don't know how you, are. you have no idea how you are and you can't even think about it it's too much of an overwhelming question no. to even begin really? to answer how am i now this minute or how am i this hour how am i like it's just too much big it's too big a question every day basically felt like a week Mm-hmm. And at the end of every day, I kind of had that Friday feeling of feeling knackered and relieved. And then also the same time, like the Sunday night feeling, because it was all going to start <laughs> again. Yeah, I think asking how are you is something that you can very much put into the middle of a conversation, provided mm-hmm. that you are really ready and there to listen and give the space and time to what that answer is and also maybe just say that you don't they know they don't need to answer that if they don't really want to or can't put it into words so I think rather than greeting someone with hi how are you hi it's lovely to see you so nice to hear your voice something else to open the conversation absolutely thank you so much for sharing all that advice because I think there'll be so many people that will wandering always and we don't talk about grief enough I think we I've heard some some great podcasts about it but actually we still find it really scary because it is um and thank you well thank you for listening and asking fantastic questions as always and for doing this podcast we are going to come back at the end of January with our usual format of three figures and then hopefully we will get back into the swing and 2023 will be a year of 12 podcasts one each month brilliant cannot wait just finally if you were going to sum my mum up in three words what would you say i would say determination love encouragement because whether it was going for a run with Tom, it was get up that hill, or this is your new job, you're gonna be absolutely great at it, or yes, you can absolutely cook that thing, or yes, you can do this impossible thing. And one moment for me that really shone through was I was going out to visit Charlotte in Florence, and I basically had every delay under the sun. And it was gonna work out that I would only be there for literally 22 hours. And at a few points the day before, I actually just genuinely considered giving up because why would I stay in Gatwick like all day? And then still, we didn't know if we were going to take off that evening. And every time Charlotte was just, no, but gee, you've made it this far. It's going to be okay. You, you can do it. And it's going to be so worth it when you get there, I promise. And that whole time was so Jane. It was such a, 
That is exactly how she would have reacted in that situation. That's exactly how you react in that situation. That was very obvious to me that that was her. 